1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Sari. Hi, Jen. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Just getting ready for Nicole Hannah Jones and doing some research about her. Is there anything I should look into specifically that you're interested in? She's gotten a lot of pushback, which yes, I guess she's she not.
2: I find it intriguing, <laughs> but not surprising. She's seeking to do something very different uh, than what most journalists do. She's going back and sort of provoking us to reconsider history.
1: Definitely. I mean, the 1619 Project, which is what she's most known for, was huge. For those who don't know, it was a New York Times magazine edition released on the 400th anniversary of the year that the first slave ships were believed to have arrived in America. Um, She actually won the Pulitzer Prize for that project. And she's also been the recipient of a MacArthur Genius Grant. Pretty impressive. I guess more overarching throughout her career as a journalist, she's covered uh, mostly racial justice, school segregation and equality, some at The New York Times, some at ProPublica and other papers around the country. Um, But she was born in Iowa and she herself was bused to school as part of a voluntary desegregation program. Anything else you're thinking about ahead of it?
2: Well, I'm really excited to talk to her because I think by going all the way back in history, telling a different story about America is giving the opportunity to sort of reconsider the role of slavery and how it continues to impact America today. And that's a really important thing. And then there's sort of the subset of issues of all the kind of pushback that she's getting, not unfamiliar with pushback women who are provocative, who challenge norms get, but there's something particularly unique about even her allies being uncomfortable with the manner in which she as a journalist is approaching this topic. People find that she's not objective. And what does it objective really mean? I'm not sure that it means you come at it without a set of biases. I think we all do. It just means you come at it with a set of accepted biases. Totally. And
1: I'm really interested to talk to her about that. Awesome. All right. Well, she's coming on soon. So let's get to it. All right. All right. All right.
2: Welcome to Just Something About Her, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. I'm your host, Jennifer Palmieri. Hi, Nicole. Thank you very much for joining us. I really
3: appreciate it. I really appreciate your time. Thank you.
2: Where are you from in Iowa? I...
3: I'm i from Waterloo.
2: Waterloo.
3: Northeast right. Iowa. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, Every feel... four
3: years, everyone yeah. <laughs> comes on uh, Waterloo, and then we go back into obscurity, but that's where I'm from.
2: I think I'm going there this week to cover the Teresa Greenfield race. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Interesting things happening there. Um, I do think sometimes that women, I mean, I look a lot, I try to look a lot at women who have big success like you, who've really like really broken through in a way that is changing how we think about something. That's a really big deal. The 16A Project is very ambitious uh, and has a lot of different features. It's multimedia. It seems like you got to go big to not be ignored if you had come in with a smaller scale, would that have been dismissed? And did you think consciously, I need to go really big here in order for it to get any attention at all? Or was that just the scope of the problem required a big
3: effort? I think it was both. When I was thinking about what should I do as a journalist to try to mark this 400th year anniversary, it was very clear that you cannot tell a 400-year story that has been really obscured from our national narrative by writing a single essay. I knew that was impossible. So my initial pitch was to take over an entire issue of the magazine and dedicate every essay in the magazine to looking at the the legacy of, of slavery and that it would be not just about what happened a long time ago, but talking about America today and making these connections in um, modern American life back to slavery. So I always knew it needed to be both because of the weight and the the magnitude of uh, this 400-year anniversary, but also, yeah, that what what is a single article going to do? How can a single article be transformative? It's possible, but not... It, it just... It never crossed my mind that we should do something small with this, that if we were going to mark this 400 years, it should be very big. And what I pitched actually wasn't as big as it ended up being. Everyone Mm, at the magazine kind of saw the vision and it just kept getting kind of bigger and bigger. But my real ambition when... My editor asked, like, what's your dream, your big dream about the project? And I said, I wanted people to know the date 1619. I wanted to bring that date out of obscurity. And it it seemed like so fantastical um, that you could do that with a a work of journalism. But, you know, here we are. So even when Trump tweets about the 1619 project, whether his supporters read a single word of the project or not, they also know the date 1619. And uh, I think that's amazing.
2: Mission accomplished. I mean, it's just like, I love the trolling aspect of that, too. Where you're like, oh, I see you on Twitter. Exactly. Reaffirming
3: my message, Donald Trump. You know 1619 and all your followers know 1619. So, yeah, that, yeah. That, that to me is it's more than I could have right. dreamed.
2: I know when you were in high school, you uh, wrote for the student newspaper and wanted them to cover more African-American issues, your high school in Waterloo, Iowa. I I imagine you got some pushback when you did that in high school. Um, Did you go into the New York Times when you pitched this project thinking, it's like what I did in high school? Um, Is it the same thing,
3: sort of dynamic repeating itself? I I can't say I ever had the thought that this was like, what I did in high school, though, I have said, you know, I came across a date 1619 in high school and mm-hmm. it was in a uh, one semester black studies elective course that my high school offered. And it was that same teacher who also um, told me to join my high school newspaper because I was upset that it didn't write about the Black kids like me who were bused into the school. So mm-hmm. certainly it was in high school that those two moments kind of come together that would ultimately lead to the 1619 Project. But I I wanted to become a journalist to write about racial inequality and Black Americans in particular. And I understood that in high school when. I had a column called From the African Perspective, and, and that's what I wrote about. That's been the only reason I've ever wanted to be a journalist. So in that mm-hmm. way, absolutely, this is a, a manifestation of why I ever wanted to be a journalist in the work I've been doing for two decades. I mean, it really is in that way. What do you think that our present and future can change when you reframe the past? I think it is very hard to understand what needs to be done in this country if we don't understand what built it. And what I've heard again and again from people who have read the 1619 Project is, oh my God, I just had no idea. So you look across your country and your community and you know, we all know that in anything that you measure, Black people are on the bottom. We know that. It's not shocking. It's not surprising. And without the information about why that is, you can't help in some ways to buy into the stereotypes of why that is. You know, we're a free country. We all have the same rights. So what's the problem? Why, why do these people still struggle? But when you have something that gives you that architecture and you say, Oh my God, generation after generation, we did these policies, we created this, then you build the desire to create counter policies and counter movements to undo what was done. But if you don't understand the architecture and what it was built, you can't destroy that foundation. So that to me is what the reframing does is it it moves the lens. it It widens it. And suddenly you see so much more and you understand so much more. And once you have that understanding, I don't think you can then pretend that you didn't, learn what you learned. Um, And it does change the way then that you think about policy and action and what is required of all of us as citizens. Um, That's certainly what what learning history has done for me. That answer leads me to this sort of
2: revelation. I don't know. That's a little pretentious um, thought, (laughs) which is, yeah, because I, you know, I worked a lot in politics and it's like we are so divided right now and there's so much dysfunction in government. And it's not as if we don't know what the policy solutions are. You know, when I worked on presidential campaigns, people were like, what's the big new policy solution? It's like, mm, still the same thing. We need some more money for education. <laughs> it's not distributed equally. We have huge health disparities. Healthcare is too expensive. It's not available to everyone. And I I don't think you build more support for these policies by having better poll tested messages. It seems like we got to get like deeper in. And what you're suggesting is if you understand how these problems came about, why they're so persistent, how it was done deliberately with intention, then these policies make more sense. I mean, it's interesting that we have to go back to our past to find the understanding that helps us build support for policies that we
3: want to embrace now. Absolutely. I mean, this, this is the problem with how politics work, right? Is You need a simple message. But the reality that we live in is, has very complex generational causes. You know, it's very simple to say, if you want to succeed, just work hard. It is much more complicated to say, well, actually, this policy happened in 1965 and it prevented Black Americans from doing this. And then the government created redlining. And and, right, the GI Bill was discriminatory. Like that is a long, complicated answer. And we just want the simple answer. It's easy to say, just work hard. So, what I try to do with my work is build that intellectual scaffolding. Like, actually, let me explain to you how we got here. And then I think when you give people that basis of knowledge, then it's easier for them to understand policy that feels unfair to them, right? To to say, for instance, Black people deserve reparations just feels unfair. Right. Until you actually see, you know, the 350 year history until I tell you, well, I'm, I'm 42 or I wish I was 42. I'm 44. Um, and, I'm the first generation of Black Americans for whom it wasn't legal to discriminate against me. Literally the first generation. When you can help people understand that, then I think you open the door for them to be more accepting of, of policies that, again, their their instinct is to say, well, what about me? That doesn't feel fair to me. Um, right. And and we've done such a poor job of teaching this history that you understand why people have the the reaction that they have. I mean, that really is. Why people re- respond to the work that I do? Because you know, before the 1619 project, I was doing this with school segregation. I was doing right. this with housing, housing segregation. Not just saying, "Hey, we're segregated," but saying, "Let me show you the intentional government policies that led to this and that constrain people's choices." That's eye opening. I mean, that's what history has done for me. That's why I've loved history. I mean, I used to watch the History Channel with my dad. I've loved history since I was young because it it calmed me. All of a sudden, yes. society made sense to me when you understood what built it. That was my next question was, you said that understanding inequalities and how they were
2: built calmed me. Yeah. Because it lifted a, it, you know, showed why things were harder, because why?
3: Yeah. So, I mean, one of the benefits of being bused uh, to white schools starting in second grade was I literally two hours a day, hour to school, an hour back could see the landscape of inequality through the window on my bus. And I could see how everything changed as we started going from the black side of town to the white side of town. I had my neighborhood friends, and then I had my white friends from school. And it was very clear to me that white kids weren't working harder. Their parents weren't working harder. They were working different types of jobs than the people in my neighborhood, but they weren't working harder. I knew that Black people wanted nice homes. They wanted safe neighborhoods. So, where were these beliefs coming from that somehow we didn't work hard, we didn't want better? But yet, you see the disparities. You see that the houses look in more disrepair on the black side of town, that there's fewer amenities, that black people seem to be struggling financially more than other groups. So, you Mm -hmm. had these facts, but no explanation for them, except that, well, maybe we don't want better. But when you study history, all of a sudden it all makes sense. And you're like, oh, Our neighborhood was redlined. People in this neighborhood couldn't get loans to fix up their home. They were barred from the union jobs that allowed them to lift themselves up. They literally couldn't move into the nicer white neighborhoods. Then there's a logic. Yeah. You understand why it happened. And that just made me want to learn more history and more history and more history. I wanted to fill in all of these gaps. And that's why when I say, you know, the 1619 project, it's, it's really like 30 years of study. It's 30 years of me reading everything I could to try to understand the landscape of racial inequality in this country and finally being in a position to do something with, with that knowledge I've been accumulating over years. I, I say it's like, uh, the matrix, taking the red pill <laughs> yes! in the matrix. Yeah. And suddenly <laughs> you can just live your oblivious life or you can mm-hmm. take the red pill. And now you see all of the coding. That has created the environment uh, that you live in.
2: But it does seem that in your own career, maybe you're mirroring what has to happen sort of writ large in America's awareness, which is you started or, you know, some of your your journalist work is about education and uh, the racial disparities there. And you get like all the way back to 1619 to tell us the bigger story of why these things are And that's the process that America probably has to go through, too.
3: Yeah, I mean, the kind of tragic beauty of uh, this and studying history is once you understand this is all constructed, it's not natural. The inequalities we see are not natural. They are not inevitable. They were intentionally created and constructed. Then you actually know that there is a power and ability to deconstruct them, that uh, because it's not natural and inevitable, we actually can create a country that has far more equality than it does now. So it's been amazing to me how so many critics of the project say the project is teaching victimhood, when I actually think it's incredibly empowering to understand these created systems, because one, then you don't internalize and say, oh, it was just Right, Us. We just don't want to try or work hard. You're like, oh, there's a reason why people were working so hard and not getting ahead. That is actually empowering, but also it empowers you because it provides the roadmap to deconstruct what has created all of this inequality. So we know what to do. You do the opposite of what was done to create it. The sad part about that is, though, is that there was a tremendous amount of government and private resources that have gone into creating the inequality. And we want to put very, very little of those resources into undoing it.
2: All right, we're going to go pay some bills and we'll be right back with New York Times writer, Nicole Hannah-Jones.
1: PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcarecom loss. That's plushcarecom loss.
2: And we're back with Nicole Hannah Jones. So this podcast is called Just Something About Her because, you know, my experience, uh, women that sort of step outside the boundaries of how women are normally expected to behave sort <laughs> of, you know, push the boundaries people often say about them. I don't know. There's just something about her I don't like. There's just something about her I don't trust and with you it seems like the 1619 project is a you know manifestation of that same kind of phenomenon there's just something about it that seems to really unnerve people and i know that when uh, california schools chicago public schools said that they were going to teach the project to students there's a lot of backlash around that there were five white historians I wrote a letter to the New York Times saying that the premise of the project was flawed, uh, this notion that the Revolutionary War and er- American independence was tied to founders wanting to maintain slavery, distance themselves uh, from British abolitionist movements. People were very unnerved by that. Could you, in your own words, explain what the people who have criticized
3: the project have said and where you stand on their points? Sure. So it kind of depends on which critics, because as you know, the project published almost a year and a half ago, and there has been a lot of of different critics. Uh, Some of them, I think, are uh, people criticizing in good faith. They just would have different interpretations. And then there's been an entire kind of sustained right-wing attack against the project. So if if you're talking about the- Let's
2: talk about the people who have who who ostensibly have uh, are well intended because you know those are the people I think that we can help <laughs> you know or like or, and it's the most instructive.
3: That group of historians, their main critiques were, one, what you said about the revolution. I have a line in my essay about how one of the uh, primary motives for the revolution was a desire of some founders to preserve the institution of slavery. They took great exception to that. Which is actually fascinating in and of itself. I, I literally, um, next to my microphone have a stack of ten books uh that make that same argument. It it's not actually a shocking argument to historians of the period, but they they didn't agree with that. They felt the project, or my essay in particular, portrayed Abraham Lincoln as a racist. They didn't feel like I gave white Americans enough credit for what they did to end slavery and bring about racial inequality. And I guess I should say most of the criticism of the project is about my essay and not the entire 40,000-word project, which includes 10 essays, a special section of the newspaper, podcasts, poems. It really focuses on my essay, which I I think there are lots of reasons for that that maybe we'll talk about. Um, (laughs) And that in general, the project was just too pessimistic and kind of didn't believe that forward progress is inevitable, which even amongst many historians, even white uh, liberal historians, they want to believe in kind of the purity of our founding and that, yes, we were flawed, but that racial progress was always a part of who we would ultimately be. And of course, my essay says that slavery and anti-Blackness is in the DNA of our country and and they rejected that metaphor.
2: You know, some of the critics I've read the one that really just had the biggest impact on me was Brett Stevens' column. Because the word ambition that he kept using um, the very beginning of his piece, he keeps talking about ambition and ambition in journalism and how that can be a good thing. But ambition is like an interesting word when you're talking about a Black woman who has a very big, challenging project that's sort of shape-shifting in how we look at an issue in the New York Times. And he said, but ambition can be double edged. Mm-hmm. Journalists are most often in the business of writing the first rough draft of history, not trying to have the last word on it. Like my parentheses there for me is how dare you, Nicole, right? How dare you try to have the last word on it as if that's what you're trying to do. Um We are best when we try to tell truth with a lowercase t following evidence and direction unseen, not the capital T truth of a pre-established narrative in which inconvenient facts get discarded. I mean, I get what he's saying, but I thought, "Mm, I think that might be what's part of what's wrong with journalism today is that particularly the unseen, that word unseen, that he wants the journalist to not be part of it. And I've always felt that journalists, they should try, seek to be seek to have credibility, but I think to, to claim that they can be objective, erase themselves from the story, what that really sort of has boiled down to is a tradition of where the white man can be the objective journalist because he's the one who's not marginalized. He's the one that doesn't have a stake in telling this history in a different way. But what did you, you know, I'm interested if you have a reaction to what he said, but really I think that what was unnerving to him was you were doing journalism in a wholly different way. And I know that at one point in your life you thought about being a historian and settled on a journalism, but what were you trying to shape and move there? What do you think about that journalism should be?
3: Yeah, I mean... I clearly thought that entire column was just uh, tremendously patronizing. We're at the New York Times. We try to do ambitious journalism. I'm not going to apologize for the ambition of what we did. And the fact that 15 months after publication, he still felt the need to write a second piece against it, I think speaks to the success of that ambition. Other than that, I'm not even sure what he means by small T and big T, because if you take just the column. His argument that somehow 1776 is the date that matters and that it speaks to the country that we are, that's not a neutral position either. That is a position that one can have as a white male whose people were not enslaved, uh, who had the right and ability to vote, for whom the democracy initially was built for. But he can pretend that that is a neutral, objective position. I just don't pretend. That's the difference between the type of people who say that journalists should not have a point of view or a perspective or put their thoughts. Every journalist's decision to a degree is subjective. What beats we have. We have a police beat. Every single newspaper has a police beat or a crime beat. They don't have a poverty beat. That's not an objective decision. Who you interview. Whether you put that person prominently at the top or somewhere in the bottom, what quotes you choose, where it runs in the newspaper, none of these are uh, objective decisions. But that word subjectivity gets rolled out all the time when it is talking about journalism of people who come from the margins. And we are asking people who come from the margins to pretend that their experiences don't color their journalism because oftentimes White journalists, and particularly white men, can pretend. They can pretend that they have no thoughts or feelings about any of this. It's just the facts. Well, that that's not true. And so I think his response to our journalism was that it was deeply unsettling to the myths that he wants to hold about America. And those myths have not been useful to me. And this project <laughs> was about pointing that out.
2: A lot of this criticism just makes me think that women, people of color, and especially women of color are often held to higher standards and have much farther to fall. Do you think that's playing a role
3: here? Yeah. I mean, my standards are very high and you don't get to be a black woman in a position like I am without being... With a genius grant. (laughs) excruciatingly <laughs> aware that you can't make missteps, that you have to be, you know, Black folks are raised with the adage, you have to be twice as good to get half as far. So I took very personally the attacks that somehow I didn't care about facts. I was sloppy. Trust me. that It's just, it, it's not, it's just not true. And this is, I think, what made sometimes even... Some of my coworkers, it was difficult for them to understand how deeply some of these attacks were affecting me because I can't just brush them off. People already don't want to believe in my credibility. Uh, I, my entire life had to prove somehow that I deserve to be in the places that I'm in. And so there's already a kernel of doubt in a lot of people's minds. And then I'm not just a black woman, but I present in a very particular way. I refuse to, you know, I don't straighten my hair where I I look a certain way. I talk a certain way. And so if I'm discredited, it's not just discrediting of me, but other black women. And I think about that all the time.
2: Yeah. Do you feel like that? Do you carry that burden along with you in, in having to defend your work?
3: Absolutely. It's not just yeah. It's not just, I mean, it, it is me. And as a journalist, all we have is our integrity and credibility. It's certainly me, but it's much more than me. I know that I I stand in as as so many black people do. We're we're symbolic. We stand in for everyone else like us who dares have this type of ambition. Even when I pitched the 1619 project and I knew it was very ambitious. I knew we were commanding An unprecedented, in some ways, amount of resources from the times. And if we had failed, I understood how much harder that would make for the next black or brown woman who came behind me to pitch something this ambitious that it would be, whether consciously or unconsciously, used against uh, the people coming behind me. This is the burden we carry all the time. When you're defending your work, because you're pretty ferocious in defending your work, you're just like
2: not defending your work. You're defending like the credibility of your entire career mm-hmm. and the Times wanting to invest this, you know, a lot of resources and effort into the project, but then women who will follow you, hopefully.
3: Yeah. I mean, I have a lot of meaning, uh, symbolic meaning uh, to people in ways good and bad. So for mm. other Black journalists, other Black women, seeing me in the places i am and having brought forth a project like this is is profoundly meaningful to them and then there's other people where seeing me in a position like this uh speaks to some change that they are very uncomfortable with or that somehow the standards have slipped because how else could someone like me be in a position to command these resources from the time um mm-hmm. so those things are are happening at the same time. I cannot get enough credentials to convince some people that a black woman like me should be in the position that I'm in. There's just there there aren't yep. enough credentials I can get. I, I I think I've won almost every award in journalism and, and it in the end it will not matter. Yeah. I cannot get enough.
2: At what point in your career did you make that realization? And are you okay with that? Did that liberate you in any way? Like, I'm never going to be able to meet the bar that's
3: high enough. Therefore, I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to live life differently or what? I've always known that. I've Uh always known that. When I was in high school, I only applied to one college. I applied to the University of Notre Dame. It was the only college I applied to. I I applied to this school because I, I understood that if I wanted people to take my intellect seriously, I had to have a prestigious college on my resume and I paid. I'm still paying student loan debt for that decision. Right. So I, I've long understood the rules by which I had to play. But at this point, I honestly have nothing to prove. And it's very liberating to just say, I'm just going to do the journalism that I want to do. I'm going to look the mm-hmm. way that I want to look. I'm going to speak the way that I want to speak. Because I I really do feel like my work speaks for itself. And the level of discomfort that my work has brought out in certain sectors is actually just uh, very affirming of, of the work that I'm trying to do. But you do have to, I mean, you you will go crazy trying to prove to people that you belong, that you've worked hard enough, that you're deserving. And this is the... This is kind of the beauty of uh, patriarchy and racism, because if I weren't successful, it would be because I didn't work hard enough. And if I am successful, it's because I didn't deserve it and people gave me things <laughs> that I didn't earn. So once you realize you can't win, um, I mean, I'm winning in life. I'm winning. I, I don't want to make it feel sure, like I'm totally a victim. Winning. I, I right, clearly yeah, yeah, am not. Yeah, right. But once you realize that in some people's minds, no matter what you do, it's just going to prove their theories about you. You just become free. You don't care because you realize the game is rigged. So no matter what you do, it will affirm what they want to think about people like you.
2: Time for a short break to stick around and we'll be right back with Nicole Hannah-Jones. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods Welcome back. We have Nicole Hannah-Jones here for a few more questions. On the positive side, what do you think this country is capable of? What's your best case scenario for where we can, when we're, when we're reconsidering history and learning from it, that we can go?
3: So in general, I'm not a hopeful person, but what we are capable of and what we will likely do are Would two likely different do, things. Right? But, well, no, I, Well, what do you think we're capable
2: of? I mean, you said that, you know, that we can withstand this sort of inner scrutiny. We can withstand that. We can do it. So what, what do you think we could do?
3: Yeah, so if we go back to the Declaration, those ideas were majestic ideas, right? Those were uh, some of the most amazing ideas of governance that the world has seen. This idea of universal, God-given equality. The problem is, you know, we've failed to live up to that. But we have seen a country, and particularly those on the bottom being joined by a minority of white Americans who have fought, you know, generationally to try to bring about those ideas. And we, we can move towards a more free and fair country. The problem is, can we sustain those movements? I'll never forget after uh, Trump won and the Women's March. And I saw all these signs that white women were holding that said, if Hillary had won, we'd be at brunch right now. And that's the problem. It's totally true, too. Right? If Hillary won, we would not be where we are right now. And Lord knows, the country that we're in right now is demonstrably worse off than it would have been if Hillary had won. But if Hillary won, all the things that I've spent my career writing about, I would still be writing about. And all of these structural inequalities would still be in place. So what I fear is... And uh, people wouldn't see it as clearly as they do now. That's right. It, did, it, I mean, did,
2: it It like cracked open a window a yes. little bit for white women in particular. Like, oh, shit, if that can happen, that means I've been working from a wrong set of assumptions. Yes. And then you're more open to saying, what else is wrong
3: about the set of assumptions that I have lived my life by? Well, it can go one of two ways. You can have that kind of moment where... I thought I was safe before and maybe I'm not, right? Like, I can also lose my rights and the ability to pursue my (laughs) happiness in this country. Or it can go the other way, which I also have confronted a lot, which is, oh, that's racist. That's Trump and his supporters. That's racist. But that's not me. So all we have to do is get him out of office and we'll be okay. Well, Mm -hmm. most of my work is not speaking to Trump supporters. It's speaking (laughs) to white liberals who... It's challenging people like me. They have the right beliefs, but the actions don't match the beliefs. But we certainly can be that country. I mean, when you look at the rights movements and at least on paper, the way that we have barred discrimination in most areas, that we actually do believe in equality as a value, though not as a practice. That is a great foundation upon which to build. But then when you look at the reality, which is some polling shows, particularly with conservatives, that they're willing to actually give up democracy for racial dominion. Then, yeah. then you get you get worried. Right. So the difference between what we can do as a country, we could create a true multiracial democracy. We certainly could do that. I, I just don't know that we will. I feel all these conflicting things can be true
2: at once. We're at this very precarious state where, yeah, the white nationalists could get reelected. People, white supremacists, see this as a moment of them being validated, a moment of opportunity. But it also could all come crashing together and something more positive could come out of it. It is definitely true that a lot of white people look at the world very differently now and see if you're somebody who felt like you lost the rights, your rights were threatened. All of a sudden, when you look at other marginalized people, you understand it in a much more empathetic way. I think is what.
3: Yeah, I, I the opportunity could be one thing that I that I truly hope uh, will come out of not just the the political place we're in, but clearly with the mm-hmm. the health crisis that we're in. um, Is I hope that it means we will again understand the importance of the role of government that there are certain things that only government can do for us. And as you know, there's just been this move even amongst a lot of democrats to to believe in minimal government and that a government is the problem. Well, government can be the problem, but we know that we actually need public institutions. We need yeah. a strong public health system. We need public schools. I think one one of the things that covid has done is it has shown a lot of white americans that you can lose your financial stability and it's not your fault. That right. this, this belief that, well, if you just did the right things, if you saved, yeah. if you worked I've hard. I worked hard for what, I've right. had, what I got. yeah. And all of a sudden, right. lots of white Americans found themselves in a the precarious financial position that so many black Americans are in. And they saw the, well, damn, it, it's not necessarily... That if you save and if you do the right things, you can lose your job. Things can happen to you and it has nothing to do with your control. And when those things happen, you need your government to help you. Um, You can't just make it up on your own. I do hope that this experience has had a reshaping of our understanding of the role of government and that it's not just about personal responsibility, that hardworking people can still find themselves on the edge of homelessness or unable to pay their bills. And that there is a role the government should play. And that we also clearly have the resources to take care of our citizens if we chose to do so. This myth that you can't have universal health care. You can't have a uh, livable wage because we simply can't afford it. Well, that's not true. When you can pass trillion dollar spending bills overnight, I think that that gives lie To this this belief that we can't take care of our citizens. It's just a matter of, will we come out of this believing that we do owe something to each other? I hope so. We have one minute left Mm. before we have to let you go. And so I just want to ask you, how does it
2: feel to have your project, your work be so successful?
3: (laughs) Um, It's surreal. And I'm tremendously proud because the success came without compromise of my personal values and um, of the work, but it also comes with a burden because uh, the higher the project has gone, the more the more attacks that, that we receive. And um, so, yeah, on any given day, it's, I feel up or down, but mostly I, I feel incredibly proud that we've created something that has had this impact without having to compromise. Who we were, what we were trying to do.
2: I mean, that's a pretty inspiring lesson for you know, women that are listening to this. So, thank you, thank you, Nicole Hannah Jones, for doing this thank and you for your so work. Much. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure.
1: Sarah, are you there? I am still here. Hi. So, how would you think that went?
2: I know she says she's not a super hopeful person, but I found it really hopeful because, you know, I, I work in politics, so I struggle with this notion of trying to build support for policies that are clearly so desperately needed, but you can't build political support for them because so much of politics is just wrapped up in the stories we tell about America yep. and how people see themselves in America, right? Like that's what I think it's about at this moment. And which she, the work that she's done has had this huge impact in opening, you know, sure, not for everyone, not for lots of Trump supporters, but a huge impact in opening people's eyes about what the problem is, why all these barriers continue to exist uh, for people of color. And um, I think that that you know, for fair-minded people, that that makes a big difference in then understanding what, what what you need to do. So I found that hugely um, hopeful.
1: Yeah, it made me think about how important education is and how uh, much work we have to do on our education system in America. Yeah. And it, it was very inspiring to me to think about schools implementing or at least using the 1619 Project as a resource because it really does reframe the way we look at so many aspects of society. Yeah. And if you can teach history properly, maybe you can teach people about what is important. And you mentioned, too, that'll inform their votes, that'll inform where our next generation focuses their work and energy. And then there's
2: just the lesson that I just continually find from Black women about um, having to just understand that you're never going to be credible enough and be, and then, yeah. and then being able to put those doubts outside of you and not get in the way of your work, which is just a lesson for, um,
1: She called it ever. the beauty of patriarchy and racism, <laughs> which I've never heard anyone put it in that way, but it, it is. that Once you know that the game is rigged, right. There's, you just are liberated from that.
2: A lot of women, all colors could learn from that lesson. And it I just, absolutely. it just keeps coming up time and time again. thank you to Nicole Hannah Jones for being on the show. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating in the Apple podcast app. I'm your host, Jennifer Palmieri, Aliyah Jackson, and D. Scott Carroll engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams handles research. Allie Rogers is our associate producer. Sari Soffer is our producer. And Christian Castro-Russell is our executive producer.